0: And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
1: Savings based on cost of Consumer cellular single-line 1, 5, and 10-gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
2: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
3: Hello! You're listening to another exciting episode of Let's Talk About Myths, baby! Uh, I'm Liv. I constantly feel funny for singing it that way. I'm not a particularly good singer, but there we go. I got it, Got myself into this, didn't I? Um. First off, I feel like I made an oversight uh, last week in my little final episode about the Theban Saga. Now, Seven Against Thebes and Antigone would be boring to recap in the manner in which I recap, simply because it's dialogue heavy and, you know, ancient Greek dialogue just... It doesn't super translate to the wildly entertaining podcast realm that I like to pretend I'm in however antigone is like antigone is incredible and super famous for just being an amazing play simply because of that dialogue and the story that's being told and and antigone and the strength of a female character herself um so i just didn't want to lessen that because you know this is important stuff And, uh, and it made me think of it because somebody posted a picture of Antigonic, which is an Anne Carson translation of Antigone by Sophocles. Um, Anne Carson is a, I believe, Canadian badass translator and poet and everything. And, um... I have a copy of that book, so I posted a picture myself, or a boomerang, rather. But anyway, that's all to say, Antigone itself is not boring. Uh, Simply, the type of story that it is just does not lend itself well uh, to this podcast. I think that's the nature of plays. We'll be, you know, using those few and far between. In any case, that's all to say. uh, Don't write off Antigone. Just, you know, read a translation of the play. Maybe the Anne Carson. With that being said this episode, guys. This episode. This week, I could not be more excited to tell this story. Um, For a while, I thought I should leave this, like, just until I was further along into this whole, like, having a podcast thing and, you know, knowing what I'm talking about thing. Honestly, though, I just can't wait, and who cares? I just want to talk about this one now because it's so much fun, and frankly, I am obsessed with it. This is the story Of Cupid and Psyche, and it is my all time favorite myth. Now, the story of Cupid and Psyche is a bit of a misdirect in the greater realm of this podcast because it is Roman. That's right, this is a purely Roman myth. Over time, it's become associated with ancient Greek mythology, mainly because many of the characters existed in Greek mythology. Um, but the story as we know it didn't exist in their canon of mythological tales. You know, out of what we know. Who knows if we're ever going to discover more myths that we don't even know about. My god, how exciting would that be? What a world. Anyway, with that in mind, I'm going to be super real with you all and use the Roman names for the gods. I'll briefly say there are equivalent names in Greek mythology, but I am a purist, and even if it may not seem that way, the way I tell some of these stories or the way I complain about some of these characters, but I am. The myth of Cupid and Psyche is actually also a really recent myth, um, even for the Romans. So some backstory, much of Roman mythology came from Greek mythology, like I was saying earlier, you know, the Roman names versus Greek names. Um, They had different names for the many gods, I'm repeating myself now, but the stories are, for the most part, they carried over from the original Greek mythology because the Greeks came before the Romans, just for that basic backstory. Um, There are some myths that are Roman-specific, and there are some that are Roman-specific versions of a myth, but as a whole, the mythologies are pretty connected. That's not to say they didn't deviate in many ways, but... There's a hell of a lot of repetition, frankly. Often the personalities of gods or their relationships to others differ between the two cultures. The gods themselves, for the most part, had equivalents between the two. I've mentioned before the Roman poet Ovid because he has some incredible interpretations of myths. He was Roman and so he often took uh, Greek myths and elaborated on them. Or he told Roman versions, which were at times more intricate and detailed, um, But for the most part, Ovid, many of his myths are based in the original Greek. Anyway, I'm rambling now. This particular story, most importantly, first appears, as we know it again from the surviving records, in a novel by Apuleius called Metamorphoses, or The Golden Ass. Now, it's a novel, an actual, an ancient novel, but still a novel. And what that means is that the story is detailed, intricate, and honestly story-like in a way that most greek myths aren't they weren't told this wasn't told orally it was like actually written down as a fully fledged novel so it's quite different from the way uh, most of the standard myths are told and as such it'll differ in the way that i tell it as an aside i like to think that the story with the title of the book is that he originally called it metamorphoses uh, but then everyone was basically like hey Dude, you know, there's this way more famous collection of stories called Metamorphoses by this guy. You might have heard of him, Ovid. Ovid's of Metamorphoses was like the gold standard of Roman lit. So I just assume that Apuleius had to change the name of his book to The Golden Ass. You know, the second best title. In this episode, I'll be quoting from the translation of Apuleius' The Golden Ass that I've read in order to prepare. It's, uh, just as credit, it's translated by Sarah Rudin and it's published by Yale University Press. And it has an angry donkey mouth on the cover, which I appreciate. This is episode 10. Venus has a flair for the dramatic. Cupid and Psyche, part one. Our story begins in an unnamed city, where the king and queen have three daughters. The youngest of these daughters is named Psyche, and she is just bananas beautiful. Super hot, like Gal Gadot and Wonder Woman level gorgeous. The people of the city are just obsessed with Psyche. And not even just, again, a standard men ogling and catcalling women kind of way. No, it's like... The whole town is under her spell. They can't even handle themselves. They're falling over each other in their admiration for her. They decide that she actually, she must be an actual human incarnation of the goddess Venus, who is, you guessed it, the Roman equivalent to Aphrodite. So in this story, Aphrodite will be called Venus. Many of the Roman Olympians, as it were, uh, are where we got the names for the planets, which is pretty cool. So the townspeople are just all about Psyche. Now the grossest thing about this part of the story is that the people obsessing over Psyche as a human version of Venus are most psyched, pun absolutely intended, that this version of Venus is a virgin. Because people are gross and invasive. Not only are the townspeople obsessed with her and treating her like a goddess, but her sisters are watching this happen and they're not thrilled. And these are not nice, supportive sisters who would think... How nice, our younger sister is so appreciated. No, they're envious and devious and angry at the world. They're not nice ladies. So this assumption that Psyche is actually a human version of Venus gets so intense that the villagers are basically worshipping Psyche. And as a result, they are totally neglecting their worship for actual Venus and she is not down with that. The gods are vengeful as fuck. Venus is super pissed that this woman is getting so much attention and that she's basically been left in the dust. Add to that, this attention is based primarily on how goddamn beautiful she is, and you've got a very peeved and jealous goddess. Beauty is Venus's territory, and she will fight for it. So, in all Venus's anger, she ruminates to herself, according to this brilliant translation I have, quote, So, Here I am, the progenitor of creation, the very origin of nature, Venus, the nurturer of the whole planet, and I'm placed in the position of divvying up my exalted privilege with a human wench and seeing my name cherished in heaven, desecrated by terrestrial trash? Needless to say, this translation is awesome, and I'm going to use the term terrestrial trash forever. So Minas is clearly super-duper pissed, and she plans to ruin Psyche, because she's a chill lady. Basically, she wants to make sure Psyche gets herself out of the way, so everyone stops fawning over her. So she sends her son, Cupid, whose Greek name is Eros, and who is, importantly in this case, a full-grown man. I recognize that the main depictions of Cupid are the little cherubs, but that is not what this is. This is similar to when he hit Apollo and Daphne in that mini-myth. He's basically a super attractive young adult who also happens to have the powers of the famous Valentine's Day cherub. He has a bow and arrow and the arrows are tipped with some special sauce that causes everyone pricked by them to fall truly, madly, deeply in love with whoever they see post-prick. Eros in Greek mythology is described as pretty depraved, creeping into people's homes at night and ruining marriages and lives by making people fall in love with randos. That's his idea of a fun afternoon, which is why I love stories of the gods so damn much. They were so paranoid that a flying young man would sneak into their homes at night and make their significant others fall in love with someone else. because. Obviously, if a woman doesn't love you, she's just under a spell and she hasn't just realized that you're a dick and maybe there's a better dude out there. No, it's definitely magic. So Venus is like, hey son, do me a favor and go ruin this woman, okay? Everyone loves her too damn much and if she were married off to some monster and or weirdo, then they'd lay off her and go back to worshipping me. She actually tells him to have Psyche fall in love with someone who is, quote, utterly out of bounds. Basically, she's suggesting someone who, when Psyche wants to be with them, she'll need to leave society entirely. Venus suggests someone who's been stripped of their civil rights and freedoms. She says, quote, Let him be so loathsome that he would look in vain through all the world for someone as pathetic as himself. Then she kisses her son with an open mouth and goes off to find a beach to lounge on. Again, she's a pretty chill lady. Aphrodite slash Venus has always been my favorite goddess, let's be honest. She just gives zero fucks. So Cupid is sent down to Earth to prick Psyche with one of his arrows and have her strategically placed to spot some monster and or weirdo first and fall in love with whoever slash whatever that is, taking herself off the market and leaving the people free to devote themselves to their worship of the super benevolent Venus. Meanwhile, on earth, Psyche is having zero luck being married off, and obviously that's all that matters. If a man doesn't love you, you're nothing, right? So Psyche is so damn beautiful, and all the men are so utterly obsessed with her, but none have the courage or even the inclination to be in a relationship with her. They're all so intimidated by her. Men intimidated by a beautiful and independent woman, that's a concept we've never heard of before, right? So Psyche's parents are now hell-bent on getting her married off. Psyche's two older sisters are married, but Psyche has had no luck. I like to think that on top of all the men being intimidated by her, she was also just having none of that suitor shit. She knew she could do better, and she wasn't about to marry the first guy she saw just because women were supposed to. It's possible I'm projecting on this story, and I'm totally okay with that. At the same time, in the ancient world, women had to get married. They just. That's how it was. Without marriage, they basically couldn't be people. Like I said last week, women weren't official citizens in Ancient Greece at all, and I assume it was the same in Ancient Rome because they weren't exactly progressive themselves. So Psyche is picky, but she's also lonely. She wants someone who's good for her and who can take her away from her parents because, for now, she's just hanging out at home with nothing to do because she can't exactly go out and live on her own. Because patriarchy. Psyche's parents are also less than patient. Her father is annoyed that his daughter isn't married off because, obviously, he's a man in ancient Greece and he thinks that that's all women are good for. Her sisters are married off lucratively and he's wondering what the hell is wrong with Psyche. So he consults the oracle on what he should do. He's even so bold as to ask the oracle to set up a marriage for his daughter. That'll go well. The story of Cupid and Psyche in Apuleius is told by a narrator This narrator is telling the story of the couple to others, and the book is pretty meta, because at this point we're told that while Apollo, the god of the oracles, is an Ionian Greek, he was kind enough to tell the narrator of the Golden Ass the oracles' answer in Latin. Very thoughtful. Just translating it for him. It's just sweet. This oracle's utterance is particularly insane, even for an oracle. It says, quote, "'Array her for her wedding and to die.' O king, and set her on a mountain high, your son-in-law is not of human make, but nasty, savage, something like a snake. Winging above the ether it defeats, maiming with fire and sword all that it meets. Jove fears it, Jove whom gods regard with fear, and sticks, black river, shudders when it's near. Translation The king is told that he won't have any human son at all, no, it will be a dragon-beast thing that harasses the world with fire and a sword and is terrifying even to Jove, which is one of the Roman names for Zeus, the other being Jupiter, and all the inhabitants of the underworld. The river Styx is, of course, one of the rivers one crosses to get to the world of the dead. So the king's like, cool, better get my daughter ready for this super awesome wedding. My answer would have been to, oh, I don't know, ignore the oracle because that's crazy, or if you have to believe it, maybe tell Psyche and let her decide that maybe she doesn't want to be married to something like that so she'll just stay single like any chill chick. But no, this is the ancient world and you have to listen to the oracle. The family is apparently pretty depressed, but they brought it on themselves by going to the oracle in the first place so I don't have much pity for them. They dress Psyche in wedding-slash-funeral attire and have a whole morbid wedding march that is simultaneously a funeral procession along a craggy cliff to the top of a mountain where they leave Psyche to await her fate. The ancient world was super awesome to women, if I haven't made that already clear in the entirety of this podcast. We're told Psyche's pretty resigned to this fate, though she places the blame pretty squarely on the fact that she was compared to Venus in the first place, which is 100% accurate and not really her fault. What have I said about being compared to the gods? Don't do it, or let it happen. Just don't. Just find a way. Run away. Just any way. Don't do it. So, there you go. The whole kingdom just abandoned Psyche on a mountain. There she is, alone, on this cold... Empty mountaintop, which frankly would suck in itself, but she's also waiting for this faded monster non-human craziness that's apparently going to come marry slash kill her.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of.
3: Along comes the west wind, Zephyr. Zephyr whisks Psyche off the mountain and down into this crazy beautiful meadow where Psyche promptly falls asleep. Because being treated to your own funeral procession and then abandoned to die can really tucker you out. When Psyche wakes up, she looks around, wondering what the fuck just happened. Now, this meadow is bananas. It's greener than you can even imagine, there's a brook that's actually babbling, there are flowers that might as well be singing and dancing, it's just a complete paradise. Psyche starts to wander, and she comes upon a massive fountain. Pretty quickly she realizes that actually this isn't just a meadow, it's the garden of an equally bananas beautiful mansion. This mansion, or palace, really, has gold columns and high ceilings and mosaic floors and actually is basically just coated in gold and silver everything. But of course, this palace game before coating yourself in gold was straight up tacky. Back then, it just made you fancy. Back to this palace. Psyche starts wandering through it and learns that it has literally everything anyone could ever need. Like, you never need to leave it. You're set for life. But there's something weird about it. See up to this point she hasn't actually seen another human. It's a massive palace with luxury that's essentially unheard of in ancient Greece unless you're a goddamn king, but no actual people. Very suspicious indeed. Also you know, she was brought there by an anthropomorphized version of the wind, so there's that too. Suddenly there's a voice. She can't tell where it's coming from, it just starts echoing throughout the house. This disembodied voice tells her to make herself comfortable. This is her home now. And anything in it is up for the taking. It tells her of a bedroom, upstairs, that's been made up for her. She should go get settled. Maybe take a bath. So she does. She's pretty trusting of this beautiful paradise after being left out on a cold mountain by everyone she thought loved her. The house is made for Psyche. Everything in it is exactly as if she decorated it and stocked it herself. There's a feast, it serves itself, and music plays from invisible instruments. Besides being a bit lonely, it really sounds pretty awesome. But that night, as she's falling asleep, Psyche realizes she is less alone than she thought. She hears another mystery voice, only this time it's not so disembodied. The voice introduces himself. He says, Hey, so actually it turns out I'm your husband. How about that? But just because she can't see the body doesn't mean she can't feel the body. So the man she can't see says, hey, I'm your husband. How do you like this beautiful house I got you? And Psyche is flattered because she's just been given a house and it's a pretty nice thing. Again, especially with what she had going on in her home life and, you know, what she was expecting out of this marriage. This seems pretty great. And then the man, perhaps a bit unceremoniously, switches from niceties to, you know, sex. And this is all without her ever seeing his face. Romantic, isn't it? No? Oh. It's like he falls asleep after, and the next thing she knows it's light out and she's alone once again. She calls out to make sure, but no, she's definitely alone. This happens a few nights in a row, always the same deal, dude she can't see rolls up, he's pretty nice via his voice, but she has zero idea what he looks like. Then she's a bit spooked, because, you know, the Oracle told her father that she'd be marrying, like, the craziest and scariest monster ever. But he seems so nice, and he certainly doesn't feel like a monster. Meanwhile, where Psyche's sisters live, they have heard that she's been sacrificed, because I guess they weren't there for it. I mean, that seems like something that you could, like, visit home for, but who am I to say? This leads them to go visit their parents, who are apparently wracked with grief, but again, they did this. I have zero pity. And that night, Psyche's mystery husband comes to her again. Now, over the past few nights, they've been growing closer. Psyche was really developing feelings for this semi-disembodied voice. He was nice and caring and really seemed quite interested in her. Plus, he gave her this super palace and so far wasn't a scary monster, so she was kind of falling for him. It doesn't take much in ancient Greece or Rome. Don't rape, don't be a giant asshole, and you're a pretty good catch. But on this particular night, he had a very specific warning for her. He told her that, quote, she threatens you with deadly danger. He does not, however, say who she is or what the deadly danger is, but still, ominous as fuck. Then he tells her that her sisters have learned of her demise and that they will be headed to the cliff to pay their respects. If she hears them calling, she can't respond, she can't be in touch with them at all, he warns her that her sisters will try to get her to investigate who he is, and that would have dire consequences. Psyche agrees, we're told because she was feeling wifely obedience, but fuck that, I think she was probably just being smart. I mean, he did begin it with, she threatens you with deadly danger. Given how weird things have been going up until this point, and how, again, she was prophesied to marry a crazy dangerous monster... I would trust the statement that maybe there's someone out to get her. Then again, maybe she has married a monster? Who's to say, it's a tricky line for Psyche to walk. She's also not super inclined to trust her sisters or feel super fondly towards them in general. They were always giant bitches to her. They were never fans of how she was treated in comparison to them. Her sisters were notoriously jealous of Psyche's beauty and the attention she got for it. All the same, though, family is family, and Psyche's feeling pretty isolated. After all, she likes her husband, which is nice, but he's never actually shown her what he looks like, and he only comes to her late at night. So, aside from that being pretty weird and creepy, it's also pretty lonely. She's very torn. What to do, who to trust... Eventually, Psyche becomes incredibly distressed that she can't see her sisters. They may have always been bitches to her, but she's really lonely and they're still family. Her husband tells her, you can see them, but you do so at your own risk. You've heard what I've warned you, but if you have to do it, it's up to you. But once again, he warns her not to be susceptible to their curiosity about who he is. They will try to convince her that it's a good idea, but he warns her that it could cause real trouble when it comes to the unnamed woman who threatens her with danger. Psyche is thrilled that she can see her sisters, and she promises him that she won't listen to them if they try to convince her. She trusts him and won't betray him. She says, quote, I love you to distraction, whoever you are. I'm as attached to you as to breathing. Cupid couldn't be better. Then she, quote, plants on him kisses of great rhetorical effect. Then they have a super sexy romantic night. She, enfolds him in her compellingly convincing limbs. Seriously, this translation is awesome. Compellingly convincing limbs. The next day, her sisters are at the mountaintop mourning for Psyche. They're crying their eyes out and beating their breasts. It's super dramatic. They're really putting on a show. And Psyche calls to them to stop worrying. Just tell. I'm here. I'm alive. It's all good. Then she asks the west wind Zephyr to bring them to her, just as he brought her to the palace in the first place. Zephyr flies up, picks up the sisters, and brings them safely to the meadow in front of the palace. There they say their hellos, their holy shits, you're alive, what's going on? They hug, get all emotional, then Psyche asks them to come inside. She's gonna show them her new home. Inside Psyche pulls out all the stops, she gives them everything, gold, jewelry, Basically, anything they want. She lets them take luxurious baths, they have a feast with all the magically appearing things, it's all very showy and impressive. And After being shown the wonders of this palace, one of the sisters slyly asks, who's the master of this house? Translation, obviously there's a man that rules this place because that's just how these things work. Ugh. She asks who Psyche's husband is, and what type of man he is. Shocker, didn't see that one coming, am I right? Psyche is ready with a lie so that she can't be convinced to question who her husband really is. If her sisters don't know that he's so mysterious, they'll have no reason to question anything, or to convince Psyche to be snoopy. She tells them that he's a lovely young man, quote, handsome with a downy, budding beard just beginning to cast its shadow over his cheeks. Sounds pretty young to me, but whatever, you do you, Psyche. She says he spends most of his time hunting in the fields and mountains, and before either of the sisters can question her more, she showers them with more gifts and gold and jewels and promptly calls Zephyr to come pick them up and bring them back to the mountain. So the sisters are sent on their way, but like I said, they are not super nice ladies. Immediately, they're troublingly jealous of what Psyche has. They don't take disappointment well, it seems, and they're still angry at Psyche for being treated so differently when they were younger, the way she was worshipped by everyone. One of them says, quote, So there's fortune for you. Cruel, unfair, and stone blind. Is this acceptable to you? That we sisters sprung from the same mother and father should have to put up with such different destinies? Seriously, they're not nice girls. The one keeps going on, saying, quote, As for poor me, I landed a husband older than my father, who is balder than a pumpkin and punier than a little boy, and keeps the whole house shut up with bars and chains. Sounds like a pretty w- shitty way to live, but still, it's not really Psyche's fault. The other sister now takes up with her complaints, Quote, well, the husband I'm saddled with is folded up and bent over double with arthritis, and he can hardly ever renew his homage to my erotic allure. Renew his homage to my erotic allure. That's what I'm calling sex from now on. Normally, I wouldn't quote so much, but frankly, this translation is so fucking awesome, I can't help myself. Go read it, though, honestly, like I died. It's amazing. They keep on with their comparisons and ranting for basically an age. I, I can't just read out the book, but if I could, you would love it. Because my god. Seriously, it's like two pages of these super over-the-top rants about erotic allure. Honestly, it's amazing. I don't know if other translations are so visceral and crazy, but I am thrilled that I found this one, and frankly, I picked it because it has a donkey. And he looks angry. So the sisters eventually decide that they're so pissed that Psyche has everything they've ever wanted in life that they're not going to tell anyone they even saw her. They convinced themselves that she was being a bitch when she gave them all the gifts and showed them her life and then sent them home nicely because they are a hint crazy if that's not already clear. So they won't tell anyone that she's alive. No one has to know and that way no one will know how much better she has it than the sisters. They decide they'll head back to those lovely husbands of theirs and come up with a plan to basically screw Psyche over to pay her back for the things they've imagined she's done to them. And that's where I'll leave it. Part one of the story of Cupid and Psyche. Seriously, guys, I love it. I'll be back next week with part two, where things get really interesting. Thank you all for listening. As always, would love it uh, if you could rate and review on iTunes or Facebook. I've been getting some lovely messages on Facebook lately. Thank you all. It's so nice to hear that people are enjoying this. Um, once again, you can follow me. Instagram, MythsBaby. Twitter, MythsBaby. Facebook, MythsBaby. There's a website. Also MythsBaby. There's really nothing, not much on it, but I'm working on it. Turns out this takes a lot longer than I expected. Research is a bitch, you know? Thank you all again, you're all wonderful listeners, and I'm Liv. I love this shit. It's just, it's great shit.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback